This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Welcome to the Women in a Day podcast with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Today we are so excited for our guest, Abigail Marsh. Portia, can you tell us about Abigail, please? Sure. Let me read her bio. Dr. Abigail Marsh is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University, where she directs the award-winning Laboratory on Social and Effective Neuroscience. She conducts research on the brain basis of empathy, altruism, and aggression, which she discusses in her 2016 TED Talk, which is great, by the way, and you should definitely watch it, and her recent book, which is also great, called the fear factor how one emotion connects altruists psychopaths and everyone in between the first thing that we like to ask people is what is your favorite part of the day hmm that's a great question I have to say it varies a little bit so I'm a college professor and my days really are distinguished by whether I'm teaching on a given day or not because teaching is part of my identity but not all of it. And uh, on the days that I teach, I have to say, especially when a class goes really well, that's my favorite part of the day. It's such an immediate and gratifying thing to talk about a topic I'm really excited about to a room full of students who don't know anything about it yet and get them excited about it. It's a great feeling when it goes well, when it goes poorly, not my favorite part of the day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Probably on days I'm not teaching, uh, one of my favorite things to do when I can do it is write. I love when I'm working on a paper that I'm excited about. What are you writing about right now? Uh, At the moment, I'm working on a paper uh, with a former graduate student of mine where we are doing some research with a a woman who has total loss of her amygdala, which is the structure that I focus a lot on in my book. And this woman is as sort of as famous and exciting and interesting as, as you get in neuroscience circles. And so I was so incredibly honored and pleased to be able to do a research project with her. So I'm really excited to write it up. That's fascinating. I'm sure we're going to get into this later with your book, but is she a psychopath? <laughs> so this is so interesting uh, about her is that she's not at all. And people who have worked with her for a long time know this about her. She's quite kind. And uh, a paper came out just last year about her actually assessing her on psychopathic traits and found that she is not psychopathic. And the reason is that she did not lose her. Well, I have to say we're, we're just guessing. We don't know yet. But I'm pretty sure that the reason is that she did not lose her amygdala until she was in her teens. And it turns out that being born with no amygdala and losing your amygdala later in life have pretty different effects, especially how people turn out socially. So how is she affected? And how did she lose her amygdala? (laughs) She lost it due to a fairly rare genetic disorder called Urbach-Werther, which results in sort of progressive calcification of different parts of the body. And in a fairly large proportion of people with the disorder that both amygdalas end up calcified completely sometime during the teenage years and so again she was born with a functioning amygdala and then now as an adult she does not have one anymore 
And the most interesting thing about her that people have noticed in working with her is that she is without fear, basically. She um, does not respond fearfully to any of a number of things that most people would. If, you know, in standard psychology experiments, if she knows she's going to get a shock, she can say, yeah, every time I see that shape on the screen, it means I'm going to get a shock. But she doesn't show any standard fear responses to it. Her hands don't sweat. She doesn't take steps to avoid the shock. People have taken her to pet stores and had her handle large snakes and <laughs> asked her about her emotional state meanwhile, and she reports feeling no fear whatsoever when she's handling them. And in fact, she even had to be kept away from the, the poisonous snakes and the tarantulas that she was really excited to pick up. So she's, and she, she, you know, she has a bunch of traits related to that. So she stands very close to people when she talks to them. She uh, has been assaulted and threatened many, many times in her life because she doesn't avoid threatening and dangerous situations. Can she recognize fear and other emotions like that in other people? No, she cannot. That's a great question. This is the other reason that she is so interesting to me is that she was the first, I believe, bilateral amygdala lesion patient who was demonstrated to recognize other emotions pretty well, but she really fails when she's trying to recognize fear on other people's faces, which has now been demonstrated in a number of other similar patients as well. So this ties in very nicely to your book, which let's just talk about it. Let's talk about the fear factor. Sure. What prompted you to write this book? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. So the book is based on my research that I've been doing for the last 20 years, I guess now. And the sort of kernel of an idea that underlies all the work I do is why is it that people care about other people? Do we at all? And I think at this point the answer pretty clearly is yes, at least most of us do. And then the much sort of bigger mystery underlying all of it is why? What is it within us that gives us the ability to care about other people's welfare for real, not just because of how their welfare might affect us? And so in doing this research, I've focused on studying people who are at either end of what I have called the caring continuum, meaning they either have much more than the usual amount of care for other people or much less. With people who have much less being people who are psychopathic, they, they legitimately don't seem to care about others. And then I've also studied people who seem to care much more than average about others, who have, for example, donated a kidney to a stranger because they didn't want that stranger to die. So what did you find? So the research that I've done suggests that people who are at either end of this caring continuum look like kind of mirror images of each other in some ways. People who are psychopathic are notable for a couple of deficits that have been observed across lots of studies now. Uh, One, their amygdalas tend to be smaller than average, so the same structure that is completely gone in SM, this um, patient I was talking about. And people who are psychopathic, it seems to be dysfunctional from very, very early in life, possibly from birth. There's a, there's at least some genetic component to psychopathy, so there's probably there were problems with it from the beginning. It also doesn't respond very strongly to the sight of other people's distress. So when people are upset, when they're frightened, when they are um, suffering, in most people, that elicits a strong response in the amygdala that seems to be connected to whether you recognize that that person is in distress. 
And if people are psychopathic, the amygdala is just not responding correctly. And so as a result, they don't seem to be able to recognize fear very well, quite a bit like SM. And what we found is that people who are very altruistic, who care more than average about other people, look the opposite. Their amygdalas are bigger than average, they're more responsive to the sight of other people's fear in particular, and uh, that seems to help them better recognize other people's fear. And so that suggests that there's some really important link between the way that this part of the brain responds to other people's distress, in particular their fear, and the capacity to care about people. That's so interesting. And in the book, you talk about this, but you had a very pivotal experience that really led this to have a very personal effect on you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. The reason I think I am interested in this question to start with stems back to something that happened to me when I was 19. And early in my college career, just started studying psychology. And when I was home from college for the summer back in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and I was driving home one night, I ended up having an accident that led to my being rescued, having my life saved by a complete stranger. Uh, What happened is that as I was driving home uh, on the freeway, Interstate 5, which is a major freeway running from Seattle to Tacoma, it was the middle of the night, and luckily the freeway wasn't too full, but uh, a dog ran in front of my car. And I did what you shouldn't do, which is I swerved to avoid it. And as a result, my car ended up spinning out of the freeway. And after it turned a couple completely terrifying sort of donuts across the freeway, which again, luckily, not too many cars or I for sure would have died, the car ended up stranded in the fast lane of the freeway and then the engine died. So here I am stuck on this overpass uh, on this freeway in the middle of the night, no cell phone because it's the 90s. And I don't know what to do. The, the semis and the trucks and the cars are streaming past me at, at it feels like warp speed. My car is shaking every time they go past. There's nowhere to escape. There's no shoulder because I'm on this overpass. And I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to die. I have no idea how to get out of this scrape or to even get my car turned back on. And, uh, and then a stranger appears from out of nowhere at the passenger side window of my car and says, you look like you could use some help. And I figured out later he had must have, within a fraction of a second of seeing my car stranded there, pulled his own car over to the other side of the freeway, sort of um, next to the exit ramp, and then run across the freeway in the middle of the night, five lanes of traffic, to get to me. Having no idea who I was, you know, obviously he'd never met me before. And I said, you know, okay, yes, I could use some help. I mean, I don't know who this man is, but what choice did I have? And um, he got in the car, he figured out how to get it started again, gunned his back across the freeway, and then I'm sure I looked at a wreck. I felt a wreck at that point. I was so terrified. Oh, how could you not? That's crazy. Yeah, I remember just shaking, and I was sort of numb and just felt all sweaty. And, you know, he's like, you don't look so good. Do you need me to follow you for a little bit to make sure you get home okay? I said, no, 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 I'll get, I'll get home okay. I'll fine, I'm fine. Um, and he said, okay, you take care of yourself then. And off he went. He got out of the car, back in his own car, and disappeared. And I, I am pretty sure I forgot to say thank you, which haunts me to this day. But I was left with this sort of incredible knowledge. And there's no knowledge like knowledge that you get from experience, right? It's one thing to know that people save strangers' lives because you read about it in the newspaper. It's another right. thing to know that you would be dead very likely if this man not appeared out of nowhere, risking his own life to save mine. 
And it just kind of ate at me. I, I just cannot believe that he did this, that this man, I don't know anything about him. He, he didn't get anything to his advantage out of the whole situation. Why would he do that? Why would anybody do that? And so that question, I think, has sort of permeated the research that I've done since then. Would you consider him an altruist? Very certainly. Do you think there's a difference between altruism and heroism? This is a great question. Most people think of heroism as sort of a momentary act of risky bravery in the face of usually physical danger, you know, fire, water, sometimes a physical human attacker, and sort of acting in the moment to save somebody else's life. Whereas altruism, I think, is a little bit broader range of actions, and it's not always obvious how risky it is to, for example, give away a kidney to a stranger. Um, And so I think most people would call, for example, donating a kidney to a stranger altruism, but not heroism. And what this stranger did for me, both. Although I should emphasize that in psychology, nobody... You, you, you can't get 100% agreement on anything. So yeah, it's a bit more subjective. Even on this definition, but I think that's pretty common usage. As I was listening to your book, and I have to say the audiobook version is fabulous too, is there any correlation between people who go into the world trusting others and their own altruism versus those who are more suspicious of others? I do. I think there's a really interesting and important relationship between the tendency to be altruistic towards strangers in particular and that's the kind of altruism I focus on because when people are altruistic for friends and family members it's much the motivations are very complicated and it's not that you can't be motivated to help somebody's welfare when that somebody is your spouse or your child but there's a whole other raft of reasons too. So it just gets a little tricky. But when you're helping a stranger, especially an anonymous stranger, there are very few ways to explain taking risks and making sacrifices to help a stranger other than altruistic motivation. So why people help strangers has definitely got a lot to do with the way we think about people in general, um, because that's what a stranger is. It's a randomly picked you know, person from the world's population. And I get the sense that people who are the most likely to help strangers do think about people differently in general. I think that they are more likely to view strangers in a positive and trusting way. And not in a way that they're they're sort of like suckers or naive. Right. Just sort of all things being equal, they're more likely to assume that a stranger is somebody who could one day be a friend rather than somebody who is inherently untrustworthy. Or they have, you know, that sense of empathy, like, you know, even if someone you talk about in the book that he probably couldn't see into your car and see that you were a younger woman, but just that sense of empathy of someone very quickly jumping into the shoes of, you know, what what if that were my daughter? What if that were my wife? People who can go there very quickly without prompting. Yeah, who seem to have this tendency to for lack of a better word, put themselves in the shoes of other people in general without as much distinction about who that particular person is. Abby, have you had a chance to look at these altruists over time to see if any of their tendency to help others or be altruistic 
fades over time due to maybe a bad experience or I've heard maybe adrenaline can affect the amygdala? Mm-hmm. So I haven't spent much time, so I will say we're starting to look at other kinds of altruism other than kidney donation now, but I haven't been doing it for long enough to be able to say much yet. But I have been working with altruistic kidney donors now for several years, and I will say that it's not like there are, you know anybody in the world doesn't change a little bit as time goes on due to life experiences, but what I am generally impressed by is how sort of persistent their desire to help people is. In fact, many of them have gone on to form organizations, one of which I'm part of now, devoted to trying to get more people kidneys. They just seem to have kind of a, a commitment to sort of a, to helping other people. And I will say I'm not working with a random sample of people in the world. The people who participate in my research are self-selected. And so it may be that there are people who donate a kidney and something about the process makes them unhappy and it changes their perspective. But of the over 100 altruistic kidney donors that I've worked with now, that's not been what I've seen. So let's talk about you and your life. I mean, your work is fascinating and we could talk all day about it. I know. But let's talk about Abigail Marsh. You have a lot on your plate. You're working, you're teaching. What what classes are you teaching or courses? Uh, any given year, I usually teach an introductory psychology section. So, you know, very early undergraduate students, which I love. And I also teach a class called Social and Affective Neuroscience. So it's about how the brain supports different social and emotional processes. And uh, this year, I also taught a seminar called Empathy and Communication. So learning how to use what we know about empathy and cooperation to communicate better, in particular, to write better. So you've got that. You've got research. And you're a mother. Mm-hmm. I have two kids. You had mentioned to us before that time is something that you wish you had more of. Can you talk to us about that? How do you balance everything? It's really hard, and I, I don't really do that well, I don't think. Um, I, I prioritize. The thing that's hardest for me, I think, is that I have a bit of a parental feeling, and I guess this relates to my book as well, You know, the idea that all care for others comes out of the circuits that support the parental urge. And I do care very much not only about my own children, certainly about my husband, but I also care about the people who my work is for. So I care very much about my, the students that I teach and then also my research and especially keeping my research going uh, is important for my graduate students who feel very much like my children in some ways. There's in academics, we, you refer to your students as your academic children and your mentors <laughs> as your academic parents. It, it's, it gives you a sense of what kind of relationship it is. It's very close. So. So I feel a real obligation to these various groups of people to do the best I can for them and and to take care of what they need every day. With my own children coming first, because I'm not a robot, (laughs) obviously, and and certainly my husband as well. And then my students who I work with, my graduate students, and then the students I teach. And that just means that there's kind of not much time left for many other people including myself at the end of a lot of the days. Um, last year when I was writing my book, I it was the first time in my life I think I really didn't do anything else other than work and take care of my family and occasionally see some friends. I stopped exercising, which I've never done that in my life before. 
to the real detriment of my mood. I did a little one-person experiment on how much you can eat <laughs> to be able to mood regulate. I'm never doing that experiment again. That was terrible. And so, and so, you know, it means that uh, my hobbies have suffered. You know, I'm an artist. I like to draw and paint, and I haven't really done that much recently. I mean, I'm just calling other family members, parents, and in-laws, and old friends, and things who might need me. I'm not there for as much as I would like to be. And so that's what I mean by not balancing, by, by really prioritizing the, my very top priorities. It means that a lot of other things have suffered, and I just have, have learned to kind of accept that. Email, too. Anybody who knows me knows that my ability to answer emails in a timely way really suffers when I'm busy, uh, and for which I apologize to everybody. <laughs> I think one thing that we often get fed a lot as women is this notion of self-care and what self-care looks like in in an ideal situation of pedicures or long walks or whatever. But I'm really interested in what does self-care look like when you're in the thick of it? when you don't have a day or maybe financially, you know, if you're a single mother or whatever the, the circumstances are. So now you know exercising and you mentioned yeah. um, phone calls, but are there any other little things that you're like, I have to do this every day or every week. It's just what I have to do and it really does help. Oh, the biggest one is just, I'm, I'm actually not that extroverted a person, and I spend my day working with other people and their needs. And again, these are people I care about. It's just, it's so taxing sometimes for somebody who's not that extroverted. So I really need time to just be alone and decompress, usually reading. And so I, I wake up early, I cut down on my sleep. Uh, so that I can spend the first part of my day just reading with a cup of coffee, you know, reading the newspaper, reading whatever. Well, that um, sounds like a favorite part of your day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's favorite. It's like it would be like calling sleeping my favorite part of the day, or like Could eating be. dinner favorite. It's like it's it's beyond favorite. It's just like it's an, it's a need like air. Mm. Like I, I must have it. And the same at the end of the day, I need to read before bed. And I think I yeah, it's a need. And I love starting to think about self-care in ways like that, you know, things that are accessible in the moment that you yeah. can do on a daily basis. I think it's I think it's really good to kind of flip the the paradigm of how we consider that. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say it's one of the things I like about being a little older too, is I think that you start to just accept that like this is just me. Yeah. I just need I just need time to be alone and decompress and read and I get crabby if I don't have it. And I'm not gonna try to not be that person anymore. That's just is the person I am. As a doctor of psychology from Harvard nonetheless. You you have two children. Do you find yourself um, as a mom trying to play psychologist with them? Absolutely. It is a <laughs> Next question, can we send you our kids? I will say that it's, it, you know, all the book learning in the world about psychology is much less useful than on-the-ground experience. The best teachers I've had have been all of the wonderful owl parents, and this is a term I talk about a lot in my book, and this is, an owl parent is somebody who's caring for children who are not their own, and, and humans' great strength as a species is that we do owl parent each other's children. And human babies are just way too needy to, to be cared for by just a person or two people alone, because there's too much to know. You know, for most of our history, we three women would have spent our entire childhood taking care of children. 
we would never have not been taking care of younger children. And so by the time we had our own children, it would be like, this is, you know, I know how to do it. And then in addition, you would also have younger children and other extended family members and also your friends. And, you know, we'd all be taking care of the kids together. Like it's not a one person experience. And so this is what really hamstrings moms today is that too often, you know, I'm, and I'm certainly one of these people, we, we come into the experience of having young children with no hands-on experience, assuming that we can figure out how to do this from a book. And you really can't. No. Um, and I don't know if, you, if you're like me, if you had, you know, my, uh, both of my children were in nanny shares, uh, and the women who helped take care of my daughters were very experienced nannies who'd taken care of many children before, and I learned so much from them that no book could teach me. And so here and there, you know, I, you know, I know like, well, this is how behaviorism works and don't reward behavior that you don't want to see again. So, you know, never give into a tantrum ever, ever, ever is, is one of my hard rules of thumb. Children must sleep. Uh, most parents give their children much too little sleep. And that is an important rule that I know from, yes. you know, my psychology training, but most of the most useful advice I've gotten has been from more experienced uh, mothers. Do you do experiments on them? <laughs> like the marshmallow test? Well, I, of course. I definitely did the marshmallow test. Me my too. My, uh, how, they, how they do? Um, my son only wanted one, and he ate it. And I said, why? What? Why'd you eat it? He's like, I never wanted two. He, he's very, very reserved and will not indulge at all. You say you have two, and he'll only take one. Okay, explain the marshmallow test. Oh, so the marshmallow test is this famous test of what's often called self-control that was developed by Walter Michel in the 1960s, I believe. And in it, you test children who are roughly four uh, with a very simple instruction. You give them a marshmallow, uh, the experimenter does, and says, you know, I have to leave the room and go take care of a few things. Uh, but when I come back, if you haven't eaten this marshmallow yet, I'll give you another marshmallow, and then you'll have two marshmallows. You know, you can eat the marshmallow if you want, but only if it's still here when I get back will I give you another one. And then you leave the room. And what does the kid do? And uh, in theory, children's decisions in response to these instructions can predict all sorts of interesting outcomes because it's it's a measure of um, delay of gratification or self-control. Right. <laughs> An imperfect one. There's no single-shot measure that's ever going to predict anything perfectly for exactly the reason that Portia mentioned. You know, what if your kid doesn't really like marshmallows? And they're like, well, one's enough. I don't actually want to. I mean, right. It has nothing to do with self-control. My daughter happens to really very much like sugar and marshmallows, and um, although less as time goes on, and you know, did some some of the classic strategies of trying to distract herself and, and think about other things when. Did she uh, lick that. it? Did you videotape her? She didn't lick it. No, she did not lick it. I love the stories of kids who do yeah. that. Um, <laughs> there are all sorts of good strategies kids use. So did she wait? Yeah, she did. She did a great job. Yes, <laughs> she can go to Harvard too. <laughs> Theory of mind, I've done that one before. You know, do children understand the idea of false beliefs? The mirror test I did with both of my kids when they were one. Do, you know, do they recognize if uh, if you put a little dot in their forehead in the mirror when and then distract them? When they see their forehead in the mirror, do they reach out to touch their reflection or do they reach out to touch their own forehead? In which case, oh. they're thought to be at least somewhat self-aware. That's a fun one. Wait, so if they reach for the dot on their own forehead, then that signifies self-awareness? Yeah, they know what's in them. Yeah. Oh, interesting. If they recognize that what they're seeing in the mirror is themselves, they have uh, the sort of beginning of a sense of self. That's fun. Do you think your research could backfire for kidney donation, thinking that, oh, only these people with these special large amygdalas 
are the ones who are going to donate and I'm probably not that person? That's a great question. Um, I, for the most part, doing basic research, am mostly focused on just trying to think of the answer or trying to understand the answer to the question. And I can't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the downstream effects other than hoping sure. to be positive. Sure. I think the way that people interpret my research is sort of two-pronged. On the one hand, uh, I try to explain my findings in light of the, the fact that because we're finding these sort of basic biological correlates of altruistic behavior, it suggests that the human brain is in a sense built for altruism. There are you know, natural human processes in the brain that support altruism. It's not a, a paranormal or a supernatural experience. Uh, a lot of the time, people who are very altruistic get referred to as saints or guardian angels, mm-hmm. which is, they, they seriously dislike those terms usually, almost almost to a person, because they don't feel unusual. They just think that this is a, the obvious choice to make, and they don't they don't really understand why you wouldn't make the choice. And then, in addition, it kind of it suggests that that, that it's not human somehow. That there's something unhuman or inhuman about being very altruistic. And so my research suggests absolutely not. It's you know, altruism is very much a part of the human makeup and how altruistic people are varies as a function of these different factors. But it is also true that people sometimes interpret my research as meaning that people who are very altruistic are sort of quote hardwired that way, that they were born with big amygdalas and were destined to end up altruistic kidney donors, which is not quite right either. That almost every human trait is at least partly influenced by genetics, and I'm sure the same is true of altruism. But life experience plays a role as well, and all of the processes that I study are malleable. And most of the altruistic people I study sort of followed a trajectory of altruism over the course of their life. They often, they often do describe themselves as being unusually caring as children, but then it kind of built over time. They started out blood donors and then maybe donated bone marrow and certainly often do interesting and important charitable work. And then sort of when the, the, the kidney donation seemed like a natural thing, when the opportunity arose. Have you ever scanned your own brain to see (laughs) your amygdala? I have had my brain scanned. (laughs) I was in college, I think, was the only time I had a a full functional brain scan. I've had other little ones since then. Um, You know, I think I would rather not know how big my amygdala is or not. We know it's not diagnostic. Like You can't look at somebody's amygdala in a brain scanner and say, you are an altruist based on the side of your amygdala. It's only a piece of the puzzle. But it's one of those things, you know, like getting your self-genotyped that you sometimes wonder if it's if you're better not knowing these things about yourself. Right. I'm a little, I'm a little curious, though. I bet. Well, and I had never realized the need for this to the extent um, until a couple of years ago, I was just driving around and I saw this older gentleman in a beat up truck and on the side of his truck was a sign saying wife in need of kidney donation with her blood type and a phone number and please help. And it made me think, you know, like, oh my gosh, they must be in a really dire place to go to that length to get this kidney donation. And it just makes you really hope that the right person sees that sign. And it was like, oh, my, you know, people yeah. do must do this because it must work at least it part does. of the time. It does sometimes work. This is what the, you know, major transplant organizations tell people is, is get that message out there about the kidney. 
uh, need any way you can. And you just don't know when the right person is going to see it. Because you just need that one person. Just one. Just totally. One. Yeah. I mean, the office I've worked with, that is why they donated. They saw an ad in a gas station or on Facebook or something about somebody needing a kidney and it just struck them. I'll do it. It just personalizes it in a way you, you just, you see it and you create, whether it's true or not, you create that person's story of what must be, what must be going on. And it sticks with you for sure. Do you know of anybody who's died giving a kidney? I do not know if anybody who's died getting a kidney. I actually have a neighbor uh, who donated a kidney to somebody he barely knew. So he very, he very almost qualified for my research. And he had a, he did have a complication when he donated. There was a clamp that was used to um, close a, a major blood vessel that slipped, and so he had some internal bleeding after the donation. But it was fixed, and he's fine now. Um, a few of the people that we've worked with have also had some complications in one case, there was some longer-term nerve damage, unfortunately. But again, I've worked with over 100 people, and and even the person with nerve damage, they all say they would do it again. So in no case has it been a complication. And again, the vast majority of them, they have no complications. In fact, most of them say they're back up and at it you know, within a week or two, back at work, running marathons, whatever. Do these people uh, feel like after they give a kidney... Sounds like the the level of donation is progressive. Their blood, it's marrow, it's kidneys. Mm-hmm. Do they hit this wall where they can't give anymore, like the giving tree, and they have a some kind of existential crisis? Is the kidney the Mount Everest of <laughs> altruism, or does it continue? It's not actually. There's one more thing a person can donate, but this is quite mm-hmm. a bit rarer, and it is a little bit more risky. And it's you can donate a piece of your liver. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, do they do that? Uh, we ha- I've worked with at least two people who were both kidney donors and partial liver donors. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, it's re- I mean, I, you know, I've done this for years. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. It's really sort of amazing. Um, and, uh, but again, that's rare um, by quite a bit. I do also think, um, and I was talking to one of the people that I've worked with about this just the other day, that there is this... Um, joy in, in, in saving somebody's life. But the other thing about donating kidneys is there's usually a long lead up. Between the time you decide you want to donate and call the transplant center and actually donate, it's months for sure, sometimes years. And usually kidney donors report being very excited leading up to the donation. They are, they're just, you know, they want to get the show on the road. They want to help this person. And then at the day of the donation comes, they usually feel like hell for a little bit, you know, maybe a couple days. It's pretty painful. Uh, immediately after the surgery. And then they sometimes do is get a sense of like, okay, now what? What next? And I think that's why a number of the people I've worked with have founded organizations that are aimed at helping more people get kidneys. It's sort of a way to make use of that motivation that needs kind of a new a new outlet. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Abby, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Uh, the best advice I've ever gotten was not to take... Uh, a job that I wasn't truly excited about. Um, And I know that that's not always a luxury that people have. But in my own case, when I was early in my academic career, just coming out of graduate school, I was offered a position, a professorship, tenure-track professorship, in a program that just was not the right fit for me. It was a small program, didn't have a graduate program, and wouldn't give me the opportunities to do the kind of neuroscience work that has become 
such a huge part of my life since then. And it was a risky thing to turn that job down because tenure track professorships are not easy to come by. And I, you know, my advisor at the time really was urging me to take it because she had been in this program before and I think it kind of vouched for me to the people there. So there was a lot of pressure on me to take this job and I just could tell it was not right for me and it was really hard not to take it. But um, a colleague of mine at the time (laughs) put it to me really well. She said, you know, how would you feel if tomorrow you learned that this institution had burned down? And I said, well, I'll just be horrified, first of all. <laughs> Nobody wants a university to burn down. Um, but I would also be a little relieved because then I wouldn't have to, then I wouldn't have to feel like I would have made the choice. She said, don't take that job. And I, and I realized mm. she was right. It's a really good way of framing it, that I just, I felt like I was supposed to take it, but I didn't want to. And I'm really glad I didn't because the kinds of opportunities I've had going in a, you know, taking a postdoctoral position instead um, and getting more training for, for another four years before I started in a, a faculty position has changed my life in, in ways that are wonderful in a lot of ways. I read a quote this morning that made me think of your answer and it was, um, if it doesn't feel like freedom, it won't feel like success. Oh, wow. Kind of actually reminds me of the Marie Kondo uh, cleaning recommendations, you know? If it doesn't spark joy, don't keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And not that I use those, but I... I, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I read the book with my feet propped up on piles of <laughs> laundry. and. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a clutter person anyways. I, I, I like to throw stuff out, so... Uh, yeah, um, agreed. But I, but I feel like there, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, that we, that we often hold on to things or fall into past because we sort of feel like we're supposed to or we feel obligations or guilt. And, and sometimes, the problem is that sometimes those emotional signals are telling us something important, but sometimes they're not. And the, and the wisdom is figuring out which is which. And I think about what it will be like for all of our kids when they get older because they literally can just do anything. You know, yeah. like so it's like, I mean, you can make a, a job, a career, a life out of thin air. So I, I'm, I'll be curious to see what their struggles are like when they have to choose a path. And There are, co- there are costs or, um, you know, downsides in some ways to total sort of freedom to choose. You, you, you can get a bit paralyzed by the, the different possibilities. Um, and so, you know, an ideal world, you would have some external forces helping you narrow down your choices, but within the range of choices, something that you find really exciting. It's hard because whenever you open a door, you inevitably close other doors. Yeah. So, but it sounds like you've been really lucky. I mean, you've obviously worked hard as well, but things have fallen into place for you. So that's I've been incredibly lucky. Yeah. Academic positions that are good academic positions are just, there are just not that many of them. And you never know what positions are going to come open when you're looking for a job. For example, the position I have at Georgetown, the description fit me exactly. They were looking for a social and affective neuroscientist who did research related to, you know, child development. And I studied teenagers as well. And it was the it was a perfect position description for me, and there has never been one since. Uh, there's a lot of serendipity and luck. I love that. Yeah. So we've talked about altruism in a large sense, specifically with the kidney donation. But as we wrap this up, what are the things that you want people to take away about altruism in their everyday lives? I think one of the most important 
things that I've taken away from my research that I try to convey is that caring about other people is a part of human nature. And most people really do have the capacity to care about others. There's a very widespread and unfortunate myth out there that selfishness is the only human motivation, that all motivation boils down to selfishness, and it just isn't true. There's a small fraction of people out there, and I study them as well, who are truly selfish. They don't actually care about other people, and it's maybe 1% or 2% of the population who really doesn't care about other people at all. But most people do it, at least to some extent, and I think that's so important going forward and interacting with new people in the world to, 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 to take what the, what the Jesuits call uh, presupposition, you know, to, to presuppose that the people that you interact with have the capacity to care, are trying to, to do the right thing, you know, they may goof sometimes, but to just start with the assumption of good intentions and trust makes such a difference in the way that we interact in the world. I love that. Mm-hmm. Abby, where can people find you or find more about your work and your book? So my website is abigailmarsh.com um, and they can find more information about my research there and more information about my book. Great. Um, my book's available wherever you can buy books. And I also am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is AA underscore Marsh. We can't recommend the book enough. It is so very fascinating. And I just, all the examples you use of real life events that people will know some about and nothing about, it's just, it's so good. And it's really worth reading or listening to for sure. I'm Thank so glad you. you like it. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show. And to all of our listeners, you can always find us at womeninadaypodcast.com. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please, please, please leave us a review. We read them and appreciate them. And make sure to check the website because you'll be able to see some photos of Abby and some other content that we didn't quite get to in the interview. Also, a huge thanks to our editor, Tony Tarbox, and Hilary Blair, who does our intro for every show.